You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 11th of January 2023 on Monocle 24, The Globalist, in association with UBS. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, tensions mount in Iran over two imminent executions. We'll ask why the death penalty is being weaponised by Iran's government. Growing calls for President Dina Boluarte to resign have resulted in bloodshed in Peru. Then... We've seen massive infrastructure damage. We've seen people who have lost just about everything as a result of this one in 100 year flood. Hundreds of people cut off by floods in Western Australia are airlifted to safety by military helicopters. We'll check in with Andrew Muller. Plus, political momentum grows towards reaching agreement on the Northern Ireland Protocol. We'll have the latest from Belfast. And we run through the day's papers and bring you the latest business news. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. Russia's mercenary Wagner Group claims it's taken control of the eastern Ukrainian salt mining town of Solidar. Kyiv says its forces are holding out. The World Health Organization has said that countries should consider recommending that passengers wear masks on long-haul flights, given the rapid spread of the latest Omicron sub-variant of COVID-19 in the US. And the controversial Catholic cleric Cardinal George Pell has died at the age of 81. Do stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, growing protests in Peru calling for President Dina Boluarte to resign have pushed the overall death toll to more than 40 in the nationwide unrest after the ousting and imprisonment of former President Pedro Castillo a month ago. Boluarte says she cannot grant some of the protesters' key demands and accuse them of not understanding what they were asking for. Her moves to end the unrest have so far failed. And now Peru's top prosecutor has launched an inquiry into Boluarte and key ministers. They're being investigated on charges of genocide, qualified homicide and serious injuries. Well, joining me now is Patricia Oliat, who is a senior lecturer in Latin American Studies at Newcastle University. Patricia, many thanks for joining us. Let's start with the ousting of Castillo. Just briefly remind us what happened. Um, hi, Georgina. Uh, Castillo was ousted um, on the December and on the seventh of December um, last year, after he um, declared that uh, he was closing. Congress and also taking special powers on the judiciary. And this was done in the context of a third uh, attempt for an impeachment of his presidency. So from the moment uh, Castillo uh, was on power in 2021, he faced a relentless opposition and questioning of uh, his gaining the elections from uh, his adversaries on the on the right and the extreme uh, right in Peru. So um, after his attempted self-coup 
for which he had absolutely no support. He was um, taken prisoner and uh, two hours after the attempted uh, self-coup, he was impeached uh, by Congress on uh, different grounds, this time on um, trying to break the constitution with this self-coup. Uh, now, of course, there have been protests since then and all sorts of developments. Just yesterday, there was a vote of confidence. Tell us more. Yes. Uh, so protests started almost immediately to um, claim that Dina Boluarte's uh, presidency, she was the vice president of, uh, president of uh, Castillo in the electoral formula. So according to the constitution, once the president uh, is ousted, uh, she was the uh, uh, following president. But uh, in December 2021, Castillo and Boluarte went to Juliaca in Puno, where the protests have been really uh, violent, uh, with, with lots of very serious events uh, day before yesterday. And she hugged him and kissed him in front of the um, people, the uh, Castillo supporters. And she said that um, with all these attempts against his regime, if he fell, she would go with him. So when Castillo uh, is impeached and she's named president and she accepts the presidency and forms a new uh, cabinet, uh, people call her uh, a traitor and consider her government illegitimate. Uh, so uh, from um, December 8th, Lots of protests start in the south of Peru, mostly in different regions as well. But um, the regions of Arequipa, Cusco, Puno, and Apurímac and Ayacucho have been uh, witnessing an unprecedented um, movement in its magnitude and scale because of the involvement of rural communities. It is important to say that when uh, in April 21, Castillo won the second round in the elections, his main supporters were indigenous communities who saw in his persona um, an opportunity, a historical opportunity to have someone who was representing them. You know, Castillo is a rural teacher himself um, um, of um, agricultural um, background. Um, he is uh, a teacher, which is uh, in many cases the highest uh, level of education many people from the countryside uh, achieve. So they saw in, in him uh, a representative of their interests, uh, their cultures, etc. So it was a very charged um, electoral process and for these communities very important. So when he was impeached, um, they are just uh, mobilizing in, in an unprecedented scale, as I, as I said, from little villages to uh, small towns, cities, and they are announcing a big uh, meeting in Lima on the 14th of January. So a couple of things happened yesterday. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, the top prosecutors launched an inquiry into Boluarte and her key ministers. Uh, they're being investigated on charges of genocide, also qualified homicide and serious injuries. And the government won a vote of confidence. Just bring us up to speed on those two. Yes. Um, the reason for the top prosecutor to start this investigation comes uh, from a demand from uh, a left-wing congresswoman who uh, put this demand to the judiciary. 
And so this is the response. Yes, we are going to investigate. What is important to say is that the the level of repression that is being applied and the, the extreme force uh, and the lack of explanation to the population uh, is really a, a scandal. Um, there is live ammunition being used from helicopters uh, to the population. Several of the victims of this repression were not even involved in the manifestations. Two people were trying to assist injured people during the marches, and they received um, bullets. You know, and they, they, there are there is evidence of the use of um, expansive uh, bullets, uh, apart from uh, rubber bullets and tear gas. Um, uh, fire directly to the bodies of the uh, participants in these manifestations. So the the uh, the protest is growing now not only to demand uh, Boluarte's resignation because of Castillo's impeachment, but also in solidarity with the uh, strength of the repression, the brutality of it. Mm. But clearly she has the support of her own government, uh, given this confidence vote. What this situation reflects is the huge gap between the marginalized indigenous peoples of Peru and the establishment. And this is what is happening. It is incredible, as you said in your introduction, how the president says that she doesn't understand what people are after. You know? And uh, what you can see in the official media, um, in the expressions of the, the uh, officers uh, talking on behalf of the government and the president is these huge uh, lack of understanding and interest in understanding what people are asking for, or even in acknowledging the historical demands that may be behind uh, Castillo's support. Mm. So the, the language is this of uh, terrorists, uh, vandals, uh, violent protests that need to be controlled. But in legal terms, there is no justification for the level of strength that they are uh, applying to these manifestations, but no explanation nation either. Mm. How is it going to impact on Bloate's government? I mean, will there be fresh elections as some are demanding? Uh, there has already the only uh, point that Boluarte has agreed with these protest movements was to uh, put to Congress uh, their request for elect earlier elections. So uh, her term should be uh, should end in 2026, but she requested to Congress that elections took place in 2024, and this uh, she uh, claimed for um, just an advance uh, election and Congress. The decided that it should be 2024. So um, she sees her government uh, taking on board the pressure and the protest movements as a transitionary government. Mm. Uh, so that is the only point that she accepted. I wonder if there's been much international response to this brutal crackdown and if it's going to have any sort of knock-on effect in the region. Um, that is still going on. Um, some presidents in the region have uh, supported Castillo from the start and didn't acknowledge uh, Boluarte's uh, presidency, Mexico, Colombia, for example, um, and so Petro uh, and um, López Obrador. 
eh, en Arce, en Bolivia. Um, and also, uh, uh, President Boric uh, supported or acknowledged Boluarte's presidency, but has recently lamented on uh, the kind of repression that is being uh, applied. Now, the government uh, have requested um, the presence of the um, uh, Inter-American Community for Human Rights. So there is a commission coming to, to Lima. And there have been also um, recent um, uh, documents from the European Union and the United States, um, diplomatic delegations in Peru lamenting the violence and asking for it to stop on the side of the protesters, but also on on the nature of the repression, uh, claiming for a corresponding level of strength because they considered that the repression has been extreme. Patricia, thank you very much indeed. That is Patricia Elliott there. And this is The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. A remote region in Australia's outback hit by a one in 100 year flood event has seen hundreds of people from communities cut off by the deluge airlifted to safety by military helicopters. Authorities say some evacuation centres have struggled to cope with the number of displaced people as floods wrecked highways and bridges. The crisis in Western Australia's Kimberley region was sparked last week by former tropical cyclone Ellie, which brought a year's worth of rain to some areas in a matter of days. The country's Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, pledged to repair homes and rebuild infrastructure as he visited the communities affected. Well, joining us now from Wagga Wagga in New South Wales is Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller. Uh, hello to you, Andrew. What is the flooding situation in the region? Uh, I mean, it, it's, it's absolutely colossal. There have been floods all over Australia in recent weeks and months. We appear to be having here floods this summer as opposed to the standard bushfires. Uh, but the floods in northwestern Australia are extraordinary. They have been uh, assessed by everybody who's seen them as the, well, a, a once-in-a-100-year event, the worst floods that Western Australia can recall. It is really quite something. And this is obviously a part of the country which is usual. Uh, known for being extremely dry. Why are they so bad at the moment? Uh, the climate change minister, Chris Bowen, has said there absolutely is a link uh, between these floods and climate change. He was very careful not to blame these particular individual floods or any other individual incident on climate change, but says there's part, these are part of a pattern. Um, as he put it, we are now getting once-in-a-hundred-year events happening rather more frequently than that. Mm. And what about uh, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese? We've heard that he's going to, to rebuild, but, but uh, when's that going to happen and what else has he said? 
Uh, Albanese and Western Australia's Premier Mark McGowan visited the flooded areas on Monday. They promised emergency relief funding, which could go up to $20,000 per household. Uh, they made the, uh, I mean, it's it's the standard thing that Australian leaders say in such situations, praising the community spirit of remote communities, but that's that's no small thing. It's the only way people can live uh, in places as remote like as those as if, as if everyone works together. Um, but they have said, uh, McGowan said the cost is whatever's required. That's what you do in natural disasters. And Albanese said the government that I'm proud to lead will stand with you if you are facing a natural disaster, no matter where you are in Australia. And I think what they're emphasising there is that it has to be the response has to be equal and access to help has to be equal for all Australians, not just in those more populated parts of the country which experienced floods and fires uh, in recent years. Because it's, it's very hard to explain uh, to Europeans how remote uh, these communities are, how just completely empty, well, not completely, clearly, but very nearly empty this part of Australia is. Uh, the, the electorate, the federal electorate, which covers the area where, which is flooded, which has 118,000 registered voters in it, is slightly smaller than Mongolia. It would be the 19th biggest country by surface area in the world. And does the rest of Australia care about this fairly remote region? Um, yes and no. It's Australians have a very... Zen attitude to natural disasters, especially those Australians who live outside the cities. Uh, they're going to catch up with you sooner or later. But th there is a tradition in Australia over and above governmental help of people responding extremely generously to charitable appeals in the wake of big natural disasters. And, and I'm sure that will be the case as well. But you're right, it is remote. Um, you know, from from where I'm sitting now, it's probably about as far away as Athens is from London. Mm. Um, this is a big country and it does seem a long way away, but it, it is generating a lot of coverage. I think for all that most Australians live in cities, there is still a great sentimental identification with the outback. It's a, it's a big part of the way the country sees itself and projects itself abroad. And so, yeah, I think there is a lot of genuine feeling for the people who live up there. And just looking at the infrastructure that's broken, bridges, of course, have gone, but also the great northern highways broken in places. Mm. Why are the bridges and particularly that highway so important in Australia? There's simply no other way to get supplies in or out of those remote communities uh, up in the Kimberley. There, there aren't the people there to justify uh, a network of airports or anything like that. Uh, rail infrastructure is difficult to build across that sort of territory. So they've always relied on roads. Uh, and, you know, the bridges are damaged and destroyed on all the trucking routes now from Western Australia to the Northern Territory. Uh, Another factoid which may blow the minds of Europeans, but I swear I'm not making this up, to deliver food and medicine from Perth to these communities now, you have to go via South Australia and the Northern Territory. That is a total round trip of 12,000 kilometres, which is, which is the equivalent of driving from London to Bangkok. That's just extraordinary. A lot of the people who live in these communities or some of the people that live in these communities have never left them before. And I understand that some of them are, are, are refusing to be evacuated. Uh, yeah, th that is also the case. I mean, 
remote communities in Australia, I, I've often thought it has a different meaning to remote communities elsewhere in the world. This is this is the proper middle of nowhere. Uh, people do not only grow very attached to them, uh, but the they don't leave often because of the expense and difficulty of doing so. So, yeah, this is a, a, a colossal upheaval for those people. And what happens to those who stay behind? Uh, again, the, the federal government has said they will do everything they can to help them. Supplies are being taken in. The Australian Defence Force have been deployed uh, 200 personnel, eight aircraft. So that, that's helicopters and transport aircraft, which might be able to land when the ground becomes solid enough. Uh, they're looking at places that they can evacuate people to temporarily. But you get the sense of the messaging from uh, the state government and the federal government is that none of this is going to get fixed quickly. They've all emphasised that it will be fixed, cost no object, etc. But the realities of doing this are the realities of doing this. They, For example, the, the bridge at Fitzroy Crossing, which is the only way of getting across the Fitzroy River in far northwest Australia, is out. It's gone. They won't even be able to start working on that until the end of the wet season, which is not until the end of April, and there may be more rain and more flooding yet to come. Uh, and that really is my last question about the, the weather right now. Is it still raining in that area and how much of the rest of the country is affected? It's been an extremely rainy last few months, uh, and it's noticeable even in the parts of Australia I've mostly been in, in Victoria and New South Wales, it is it is so much greener than it usually is at this time of year, which is obviously not altogether bad news. But in, in Western Australia, yeah, the, the rainy season has another three months at least to run. Uh, as the climate change minister said, these once in a hundred year events are happening way more often than that. And nobody is necessarily ruling out more rain and more flooding. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. That's Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller. Next up, Brixton in London is known for its bustling market and vibrant nightlife. But today we head to a centuries-old building in the neighbourhood that still stands and which is emblematic of the area's agrarian past. Here's Louis Allen to tell us more. This is Brixton, where this train terminates. Step into Brixton, southwest London's busy beating hub for music, culture and arts. The streets are lined with a mix of high street shops and bustling market stalls pumping tunes, accompanied by the smells of incense and the sounds of trader calls. Brixton moves to its own tempo, its own rhythm, and it's fast. But away from the busy centre and up Brixton Hill, in the quieter suburban part of the area, you'll find Brixton's best-kept secret. Now, I'll forgive you for thinking I'm alluding to the iconic music venue called Brixton Windmill, instrumental to the rise of bands such as Fat White Family, Goat Girl and Black Midi. That is for another time. I am sharing a different story about a different miracle. A different windmill that stands tall and quiet in a small park, and even though it has stood for centuries, barely anyone seems to have seen it. Brixton's windmill has gone through a series of changes since it was built by John Ashby in 1816, but today it is marked as London's last working windmill. The Black Tower stands boldly like a silhouette amongst its flowery suburban backdrop. Originally, the 15-metre tower brick construction was made simply to mill grain and provide flour to shops and stores across England. 
The design of the mill is clever and smart, with a boat-like rotating cap at the top that can turn the sails to face the wind's direction. The mill has four floors, enclosed with bricks painted in tar to keep the rain from breaking through. The history of the mill is a family affair passing through a succession of Ashby sons. In 1850, it landed to the fourth son, Joshua Ashby, who was met with the ultimate windmill problem, a lack of wind. A lack of wind because Britain's industrial changes meant Brixton was modernising. Cornfields were turning into houses and the wind flow was being blocked by the developments, forcing Joshua to buy a more attractive, prosperous water mill in Mitcham, a few miles to the south, leaving Brixton's windmill sailless, defunct and used for storage. The following years were cyclical, a story of success and abandonment repeating itself like the turning of its own sails. But 1954 brought a Brixton battle that it still fights today. You can probably guess the next part. A property developer put in a proposal with the hope of building flats. Luckily, the application was rejected. Restoration attempts started but stopped again, and by the 1980s, the windmill was derelict, abandoned, and vandalized once more. The shell was still erect and sturdy, and the eyes of the mill watched as Brixton burned in the riots as unemployment and racial tensions rose. Prospects for the windmill looked bleak until 2003, when fresh impetus was provided by the local community. The Friends of Windmill Gardens group was founded and put in place ambitious plans in partnership with Lambeth Council and thanks to successful funding bids. Brixton Windmill was successfully restored to become a functioning windmill once more. Today, it produces flour and supplies to many bakeries, shops and wholesalers across London. You may just be eating a hearty sandwich or delicious Eccles cake right now that uses their flour a true community success that's testament to community action. The building's form is still beautiful, unassuming and bold but wiser. Its long, elegant figure peeking above the houses, an architectural reminder of England's industrial past and Brixton's complicated history. Take a walk up to Brixton's windmill and it'll take you back to a simpler time, a space to reflect on the history of process, the evolution of production and possibility. You may even find an event happening there like Tai Chi or a baking workshop but just like it did in 1816, producing flour and harmonising the community. Louis Allen there on that edition of Tall Stories, brought to you by the team behind The Urbanist. Now, here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. Russia's mercenary Wagner Group claims it's taken control of the eastern Ukrainian salt mining town of Solidar. Commanders have made the capture of the town a key objective, given its proximity to the strategic city of Bakhmut. Kyiv says its forces are holding out. The World Health Organization has said that countries should consider recommending that passengers wear masks on long-haul flights, given the rapid spread of the latest Omicron sub-variant of COVID-19 in the US. The sub-variant has also been detected in small but growing numbers in Europe. And Cardinal George Pell has died at the age of 81. The controversial Catholic cleric was often described as the church's third-ranking official, but he was convicted in 2018 on child abuse charges that shocked the institution. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. The first significant protests of the year have been taking place in Iran, with reports of gunfire and tear gas in some cities, as the Iranian people continue to demand large-scale change in the country. Tensions have been mounting again over the rumoured imminent execution of two young detainees found guilty of running over a police officer in a car during protests in November. 
The UN human rights chief said that the death penalty was being weaponized by Iran's government to strike fear into the population and stamp out dissent, adding the executions amounted to state-sanctioned killing. Well, joining me now from Vancouver is Arash Azizi, who's a doctoral candidate in history at New York University, where he researches the history of socialist and Islamist movements in Iran and the Arab world. Arash, many thanks for joining us. Two people were executed at the weekend. What's been the reaction to that within the country? Um, There's a sense of anger um, in Iran amongst a lot of people because it is quite clear that the Iranian regime... Um, has resorted to executions. This is the fourth, uh, you know, with the two people now, they have killed a total of four people by executions, as well as hundreds that they've killed in the streets. Um, and it's quite clear that the regime is doing this to survive because it, it has no other way to um, actually give answer um, to people who are protesting on the streets. So I think um, there's a, a lot of people are angry um, yeah, and, and they're very disgusted. By, by this latest round. And of course, we're worried about the coming executions, which, of which there are many more dozens more are in the threat of being executed. So since the death, the death of, of Masa Amini, whose murder at the hands of the morality police sparked the protests, uh, the British Foreign Office says that it's imposed more than 40 human rights sanctions on political, judicial and security officials in Iran over their role in serious human rights violations. What more can the international community possibly do? Um, they could um, downgrade the levels of, especially European countries in the UK, they can downgrade the level of diplomatic ties uh, with the Islamic Republic, recall the ambassadors. Um, um, this is one of the things they can do. They can make very clear that every single execution will have um, severe consequences uh, for the regime, whether it's kicking them out of certain bodies, um, uh, applying certain sanctions. Um, and, but most importantly, I think it, it, they need to realize that this is a regime um, that is really bent on killing its own people. It is bent on intimidating the entire world. It's a regime that takes citizens of many countries, including UK, as hostage in order to uh, gain benefits. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's important to realize that this is the kind of regime they're dealing with and recognize the the legitimacy of the Iranian people's revolution as a long-term factor, that there will be an end to this regime and there should see beyond this regime. I wonder how much appetite the West has for change, though. I mean, some of the chatter in diplomatic circles seems to indicate that should the, the regime, the religious authorities, be defeated, the country may descend into even more chaos, perhaps spawning some kind of worse regime. I wonder if you think that's the case. And, and would you say that the West supports maintaining the status quo? Well, I, I think there is there's a bit of a conservatism, which means usually there so the West and, and international community they're always they might be always afraid of of change. But the reality is this regime, every day that it's in power, it brews instability and it's really remarkably it's bad news for everybody. It's bad news for the countries of the region, it's bad news for the Iranian people, and it's certainly bad news for um, for Western interests, it's bad news for stability. Um, yes, so unfortunately, uh, because of this conservatism, there's a sort of a short-sightedness there. Whereas they need to see, you know, when you mention, oh, what's going to happen in Iran? Iran is a society and a culture with um, centuries of civilization and, and uh, centuries of a statehood, actually, um, and a, um, you know, a very important national tradition. So it's not 
comparable to some to some other countries in this sense. Um, and you know they need to recognize that they need to recognize that they um, we have a revolutionary movement in Iran, um, and that there will be certainly a path beyond the regime. So that they might as well um, prepare for it. Unfortunately, they're very short sighted often, and they only care about certain issues like the nuclear file of Iran and of course it's important and the the quest of the regime to gain nuclear bombs is important but if you only view that which effectively has been the core of western policy in the last couple of decades you miss sight of the bigger picture and that's uh, and that's tragic mm. has this very hardline response from the authorities on the demonstrators curbed the protest movement in any way um i don't think well you know from the very beginning this has been the response right from the day one and the movement has gone on for weeks. So in this way, um, he has curved it, but it shapes it for sure. I mean, they, the reality is um, we don't have, for example, demonstrations bigger than a certain size because um, because of how murderous the regime is. So it certainly shapes the situation. And also, ultimately, it shows the limits of a street action. Uh, you cannot really get rid of this regime by street action unless it's also linked with labor strikes, um, and, and more coordinated strike action, um, and also a, a political alternative and a political leadership. And that's where the protests and the Jewish movement, that's that's where they need to go. And that's what they need to recognize. And we've known that, everybody's known that from the beginning, but it's easier said than done. Um, you know, we can only hope that they will get there. Is the alternative obvious? Who, who would take over? And well, you, the alternative uh, would be a government elected by the people, right? And a, a democratic elections. That's something that everybody agrees on. That's sort of a good news. Unlike United States, everybody agrees that uh, we need a situation in which um, different um, trends in Iranian society should compete at the ballot box. Um, now, And there are, of course, many people within the opposition right now of certain popularity. And there's Reza Pahlavi, who used to be and so Iran's crown prince, there is, you know, Masih Alinejad, a woman's activist, and, and so many of the other activists, these are viewed as people who are well-known and who can play a transitory role, uh, perhaps, um, to bring about uh, a democratic Iran. But as I said, unlike 1979, the good news is now everybody, left and right, agrees that we need a government that is that comes out of the ballot box, and that is, um, and that, and has a few other basic things that it will observe uh, human rights, uh, again, unlike the current regime, and that it will keep the territorial integrity of Iran, and that it will be a, a sort of non-religious, i.e. it will be democratic. We can include people of all religions, of course, but that there will be a separation between uh, church and the state, if you will. So these basic principles are accepted, really, by a large majority of Iranians. Um, and uh, we need the political leadership that can bring them about. Arash, thank you very much indeed. That was Arash Azizi there.
Following months of technical talks between EU and UK officials on how to make the Northern Ireland Protocol more flexible, there's now political momentum towards reaching an agreement. The Protocol is part of the UK-EU Brexit deal that keeps Northern Ireland aligned with some EU trade rules. The progress follows an agreement on sharing trade data, allowing the EU to access UK IT systems. Discussions are now due to take place with the objective of Ireland, the UK and the European Union forging a deal ahead of the 19th of January. That's the deadline for calling fresh Stormont Assembly elections in the hope that the Northern Ireland executive can be restored. Well, Amanda Ferguson is a journalist based in Belfast. She joins me on the line now. Amanda, thanks very much for coming on Monocle 24. Can you refresh our memories over the power sharing agreement in Northern Ireland and why it's fallen apart? Okay, well, essentially, uh, following the 1998 Good Friday Agreement, uh, there was a mandatory coalition government system uh, set up uh, for sort of previous uh, political uh, enemies to to share power together in the interests of everybody in Northern Ireland. Now, it hasn't been without its issues. Um, You know, nearly half of the time that it's supposed to have been operational, it's been collapsed uh, through various different crises. Uh, We had a three-year impasse between 2017 and 2020 over... Uh, a botched green energy scheme and treatment of the Irish language. And then the government, uh, the UK and the Irish governments uh, helped to bring around uh, a new deal in January of 2020 to get Stormont back up and running. Now, the politicians at Stormont were almost immediately uh, thrown into the, the COVID pandemic crisis and the handling of that. Uh, so nothing really much has been implemented from the new decade, new approach deal. And then uh, since February of last year, uh, the DUP decided uh, to start taking action um, to withdraw uh, from the institutions at Stormont over its objections to the post-Brexit trading arrangements that apply to Northern Ireland that don't apply to Scotland, England and Wales. So we've been out uh, without fully functioning government since February of last year. Uh, we had an election in May, which was an historic result in that for the first time Sinn Féin, the Irish Republican uh, Party, uh, emerged as the largest party in Northern Ireland and it's, it's one 101 year history for the first time uh, that was going to happen but we haven't managed to get um, Stormont up and running since then so at the moment uh, government is uh, sort of slow and being run by uh, civil servants we have no ministers in place. And so what happens then at the election on January the 19th if there's no deal then does the election take place? Well, this is the thing. We know that the UK and the EU made that data sharing uh, deal earlier in this week, and that was the sort of reset that uh, was going to sort of pave the way for these new uh, negotiations and uh, further issues that need to be resolved with the post-Brexit trading arrangements. Everybody acknowledges that there are issues with the protocol. Lots of businesses are benefiting from it, but it is causing um, uh, headaches for for other uh, people, um, and all those issues are yet to be resolved. Now, the UK and the EU or due to meet again this Monday coming. But I don't actually think that there's really a sense um, that there's a big breakthrough moment imminent. We know that the Secretary of State has delayed uh, calling a fresh election on a number of occasions now. The next deadline is is the 19th of January. So I'd imagine that there'll be some sort of uh, fudge uh, put through to perhaps buy a little bit more time uh, if the EU and the UK um, haven't resolved all the outstanding issues, which doesn't seem particularly likely at the moment. How political dangerous is this, Amanda? Could we see a return to tensions on the border, to the troubles as they were? 
No, I don't think so. You know, this this um, is often said about Northern Ireland, you know, that it's going to go back to the troubles. You know, it's not the same circumstances as it was in 1969. It's 2023 now. While we've had 25 years of, of relative peace, uh, the, the issues that uh, are, are exercising people the most at the moment are around reconciliation and about the normal uh, functioning of government. The the issue that the, the main British Unionist, Democratic Unionist Party, uh, the DUP has, is that it views the protocol, uh, the fact that essentially Northern Ireland remains in the EU single market. It views uh, Northern Ireland as being economically and constitutionally damaged by the protocol. Now, the other parties, the non-unionist parties, would view um, the the protocol as as, uh, something that sort of mitigates against the worst impacts of Brexit um, and that um, boosts Northern Ireland's economy. Everyone acknowledges that um, it needs to be made more practical, that there are businesses that aren't enjoying um, success from it and it needs to be resolved. Uh, however, the DUP are saying they're not going to re-enter uh, local power sharing government until the outstanding issues with the, the protocol are resolved. Now, the, the the threat of violence is never far away whenever it comes to Northern Ireland, but I think that um, perhaps it's uh, overblown whenever people say that sort of thing. I don't think there's any appetite for that um, uh, within this particular jurisdiction. I think most people just want to get on with um, you know, a, a, a functioning health service, um, you know, opportunities for their children and so on. However, it should be noted that while Northern Ireland is a place of peace, it is still a contested place. So there are many hundreds of thousands of people within Northern Ireland that don't feel British, that don't want to remain part of the UK. And what Brexit has done is um, accelerated the conversations that already existed about Irish unity. So I don't think they're going to go away anytime soon. Um, but the census figures and uh, the polling suggests that there isn't, um, you know, a, a clear big majority for that at this point. Uh, but I'd imagine that a border poll or a referendum um, on, on reunification of Ireland will come at some point uh, in the future. But when when that happens remains to be seen because we are in a sort of state of flux at the moment where the demographics of Northern Ireland are changing, that the political landscape across the island of Ireland uh, is changing. You know, even in the Republic of Ireland, Sinn Féin, who are in power in the north or, or would be if we had government, they sit, look poised to enter government in the Republic of Ireland for the first time, which would make them cool guarantors of the Good Friday Agreement. So it's it's a complicated scenario, uh, but certainly the, the focus for most people is just the day-to-day business and no Nobody wants a return to the past and it's not a likely scenario. Amanda, thank you very much indeed. That's Amanda Ferguson there speaking to us from Belfast. This is The Globalist. up to 7.42 in London, that's 8.42 in Zurich, and we'll continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me is Alessio Patalano, who's a professor at King's College London. Good morning to you, Alessio. So we're going to start looking at uh, the China-Japan spat. China says that it wants to reset economic ties with Australia. It's worried about Canberra's deepening security ties with Japan and with the US. Tell us more from this piece from the Financial Review. Um, uh, good morning. So uh, this has been a really interesting story because we've known since uh, Penny Wong 
uh, met uh, Chinese authorities a little more than a month ago, um, that there was clear a sense in Beijing that Beijing wanted to uh, reset the relationship, and that was uh, that was positive news. Um, but then you have this uh, uh, press conference that was given by the Chinese ambassador in Australia, in which um, at one point he stunned the audience by turning around and 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 started to talk about um, uh, Japanese uh, uh, war of aggression in Asia. Uh, during World War II um, and the treatment of Australian POWs, which which was felt um, in the room as somehow out of place. You don't try to reset the relationship by just bashing uh, um, or you know past the history uh, between Australia and one of its closest security uh, uh, partners at the moment. So so it was an interesting sort of uh, way. Um, to, to reflect upon the fact that, uh, yes, Beijing has been behaving in a way to try to change established dynamics um, with key actors from the United States to Australia. But the way this is coming across, it's certainly being seen as a bit goofy. And it also raises an interesting question about... Um, you know, the, the usually vaunted capacity for China to see long-term strategy from the practice of, of diplomats and certainly from what we've seen in this exchange with the Chinese ambassador, uh, that, that sort of uh, mythology seems to come to crash with a, with a very different reality. Mm. Well, let's talk about a diplomatic visit now because uh, Japan's Prime Minister, Fumio Kishida, uh, is in Britain. What's he doing here? So uh, Kishida is part of this uh, uh, sort of a very seri- quick series of interlock visits to um, the G7 members. Um, so yesterday he was in Rome, the day before yesterday he was in Paris, um, and then today he will be um, in the UK. Um, the interesting thing is that, of course, uh, Kishida is going around to the G7s because he's going to be hosting the G7 summit in Hiroshima in May. So certainly, um, sort of double-checking uh, with his counterparts about the agenda, about the crafting of the statement. The G7 in the last year, particularly um, uh, uh, certainly during the, 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 the since the beginning of the, the war in, in, in Ukraine, um, has been seen as... Um, a type of grouping that really sort of uh, put his act together to tackle some of the sort of crucial global challenges and security issues of the day. And I think Kishida is working very hard diplomatically through this visit to ensure that that continues to be the case. But there will be also specific bilateral components, um, as it has been with other cases with Italy and, and France, but also with the UK, and the lucky announcement of this new um, reciprocal access agreement to enhance further defence cooperation with the UK, which builds upon the announcement last month on the next generation fighter jets and the announcement a couple of weeks ago about uh, uh, cooperation in cyber and digital. So incredibly interesting times. And certainly Kishida has been absolutely tirelessly uh, uh, um, operating at the highest possible international level uh, to move not only Japan as, as an international actor center stage, uh, but also um, to, to develop new ties well beyond the horizon with the United States. Alessio, thank you very much indeed. That was Alessio Patalano, and this is The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. 
we know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. It's time to talk business now with Isabel Hamilton, who's a senior reporter at The Daily Upside. Isabel, since uh, Elon Musk's fall from grace when he took over Twitter and has been much reviled for what he's done on the site, many people have said they wouldn't be seen dead in a Tesla. That's the other company that he controls. However, Tesla is planning to spend more than $770 million on a Texas factory expansion. So clearly there must be an appetite for the vehicles. Well, actually, I think they missed delivery at the end of last year, um, which was a bit of a concern for investors who were already pretty shaky because there's some worries that he's sort of treating Tesla stock as a bit of a personal ATM to fund the Twitter acquisition. Um, But yeah, this factory in Austin is less than a year old. So this new sort of huge expansion is pretty sort of like fast out of the gate. It was being headed up by an executive called Omid Afshar, but recently Tesla promoted their China chief, Tony Zhu, to come over and be manufacturing boss uh, for the whole company. So he came over, I think, this month, which isn't perhaps not a coincidence. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's move on to Uniqlo because they are planning to raise pay in Japan by up to 40 percent. That's a large amount. Yeah, it's massive. So for new people coming in, new graduates, it's going to be a wage hike of about 18%. It's closer to 40 for people who've been there for a couple of years. And there was already a wage hike in September for the hourly staff. This is after the Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida asked companies to fast track wage hikes because wages aren't keeping pace with inflation in Japan. Inflation there has hit a 40 year high as it has in many countries around the world. But it should be said that For Japan, a 40-year high is only 3.7% compared to, say, here, where it's 10.7%. And is that just raising pay in Japan, in their Japanese stores and factories, or will that uh, uh, be rolled out throughout their, their outlets in the rest of the world? Just Japan, as far as we know. Right, because of course here in Britain and in many other countries, there are huge demands for, for wage increases. Absolutely. If I was a British Uniqlo worker right now, I'd be feeling pretty jealous. Yeah. Well, let's move on to uh, Danone. Now, this is the French food firm. Uh, they're being sued by activists. Why is that? So France has this law called a duty of vigilance law. It was only brought in in 2017. And it effectively means big French companies have to be pretty hot on scrutinising their business and supply chains for environmental or human rights concerns. And there are these activist groups, I think there's three of them, who are saying that Danone has not been vigilant enough when it comes to plastic pollution and that it didn't talk about plastic pollution in its most recent mandatory report, which this law makes it give out. And so how much plastic pollution is is Danone responsible for? Absolutely heaps. I think the last account, I think for 2021, it was something like 750,000 tonnes, which was actually more than in 2020. The company says that it's reduced its plastic use 12% from 2018 to 2021. But it looks like there was a slight uptick in between those two years. 
Mm. Uh, Isabel, thank you very much indeed. That's Isabel Hamilton. And this is The Globalist on Monocle 24. The business paper, City AM, says it will cease printing a Friday edition and go digital only on that day, as commuters now tend to work from home either side of the weekend. Well, Julia Hobsbawm is the founder of The Nowhere Office. It's a book, it's a podcast and a research project on the future of work. She also writes the Working Assumptions column for Bloomberg's Work Shift. Julia, many thanks for joining us on, on The Globalist. Uh, many thought that working from home would end after the pandemic, but actually Actually, the change, as you predicted, seems to have been much more fundamental. Yes. Hello, Georgina. Um, It's interesting, isn't it? I I hesitate as an author to make a prediction. And when I wrote a book called The Nowhere Office, lots of people said, you know, you're barking up the wrong tree. People will go back to work. This is an interruption to work, not a workplace revolution. But I really felt strongly um, that these trends would be lasting. And you can really dice and slice the data any way you like, but it overwhelmingly shows that white collar workers, people working in offices, people working in cities have changed their habits and want to continue to do so. And and what is the data on that? Well, the data shows, for instance, that three quarters of workers would like to work hybrid if they could, that three quarters of workers believe that they can work just as successfully hybrid. Although, interestingly, Microsoft showed some data that 80% of managers, um, you know, not only believe they're doing a better job than their workers think they are, but that they, they think that presenteeism matters more. So there are discrepancies. But fundamentally, the view is that um, having been forced to work remotely, uh, you you now want to, if you can. Of course, not everybody can. The other data, for instance, is the slump in revenue for uh, commuter fares and office rates. So um, in London, for instance, empty offices doubled in London. Um, and, you know, lots of organisations are trying Lots of analysts are trying to put a bit of a brave face on it, but even even reports by the likes of Morgan Stanley have have agreed that city centre corporate retail is is under pressure. Um, and again, hybrid working accounts for the majority of it. And as you say, the city of London, which was really a bastion that held out for full time return to work, um, has had to concede that people do not want where they have a choice to choose to work full time. Do we know why, though? Why has hybrid working become so popular? Well, my analysis, Georgina, is that this is a trend that's been bubbling up for years and reached a proverbial tipping point with the pandemic. And actually, what's interesting is that flexible working, which is really a better phrase than hybrid working, was demanded and asked for and argued for by women at a time when women had much less authority in the workplace. And so the structures around work, the commute, the presenteeism, the corner office, all of these rather sort of, dare I say, masculine, muscular edifices of the way we worked was set around men. And the pandemic stopped 
everybody universally from working in that way. And and so the power um, shifted and and the understanding and literacy of what what, you know, working from home could mean shifted. So that's one reason. The other reason is technology. Zoom and teleconferencing was around for 10 years, but it wasn't until it was put into practice. I mean, before the pandemic, I would have had to come into the Monocle studio this morning. Um, I'm unable to come into the Monocle studio, but here I am remotely and nobody bats an eyelid. Not that your listeners would know, but you and I know. Mm. So so the technology has enabled these shifts. And the, and the third reason, I think, is generational, which is that, again, all the data shows that the millennials and Zs, i.e. to you and me, the young ones who are now coming into and dominating the workplace, they want mobility, they demand mobility, they do not understand why. They have to be in a fixed place. They want, of course, community, collaboration. My my theory of the nowhere office is not no office. I'm absolutely not anti-office. But what I'm saying is, observably, the way we worked in a fixed time and place has changed. And therefore, what we call offices is going to have to change accordingly. Mm. So, I mean, for a publication like City AM, which relies on commuters, this is clearly very impactful. Do you think that people who used to pick up a free sheet at the station will bother to look at a digital version? Well, I don't know. I think one can say that there are always winners and losers. So, for instance, um, the city centre's loss in the pandemic, all of the coffee shops and the key key repair, shoe repair and key repair and the restaurants and all of those um, city centres which charged very high rents, they have suffered as has newspapers that publish exclusively in city centres, but the suburbs and the small cities have gained tremendously. Um, Data was published last week in the UK of 500 city centres showing that seaside town footfall is up, um, in some cases, by 160%. And so really what we're seeing is a realignment and a shift rather than a depression. The money and the spend and the patterns are going somewhere. They're just not going in a concentrated fashion where they used to be and where they were assumed to always be. Mm. Uh, New data shows the City of London remains incredibly busy on Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday, leading to the acronym TWAT (laughs) for for (laughs) people who who only go to the office on those days. But I wonder then if you you think uh, briefly, does the weekend start on Thursday as City AM thinks, shifting its lifestyle content to a Thursday evening? Or are people still working hard on Friday from home? If we're not observed and it's nearly the weekend, maybe we just slump off. No, I don't actually buy that and I think that the technology and the always on and the presenteeism that can be tracked and indeed the work ethic I don't think people fundamentally don't want to work I think they want to work differently the four-day week which I think is a little bit of a blunt instrument a bit more of a diet a sort of 5-2 than a sophisticated lifestyle change the 4-2 uh, sorry, the four-day working week, nevertheless, is is gaining in traction. So I think it's about changing patterns rather than a fundamental idea that people want to uh, not work uh, hard. I think people do want to work hard as long as, and this is the real elephant in the room of the nowhere office, as long as they are, you know, well-managed, 
well paid and uh, you know given a purpose. Absolutely. Those are the three things that people want at work, and if they're given them, they'll work well wherever and whenever. Julia, thank you very much indeed. Julia Hosborn's book, The Nowhere Office, is out now. And that's all for today's programme. I'm off to work from home for the rest of the day. Thanks to our producers, Sophie Monaghan Coombs and Tom Webb, our researchers, Lillian Fawcett and Andrew, Andre Nikolai Paminchuin. Uh, more music on the way. The briefing is live at midday. I'm Georgina Godwin. I'll return on The Globalist at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.